invite you to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 28 to 30 this evening. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. We're going to continue our study of the book of Romans, and we're going to finish chapter 8 next Friday. But first, this all-important and super-famous passage in Romans 8, 28 to 30. The Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, certainly familiar words to you. Uh, even if you're not a Christian here today, you may have heard this before, that all things work together for good. And it's my prayer that tonight we would not just think this way, but that we would live this way. Uh, that this truth and this passage would find its way to the very center of our hearts. And that this truth would, would live on a daily basis in our hearts. Uh, to begin, I want to tell you a story about an old man who was severely nearsighted, kind of like me. I really can't do anything without my glasses on. Well, this old man and his wife visited an art gallery, and the man forgot his glasses in the car. And he says to his wife, well, I'll, I'll be fine. I, I can see. And the only way that he can see anything in this art gallery is by going up close to each painting, about two inches away from it, and trying to decipher what exactly this painting is. And so with this man looking with his nose just two inches in front of the canvas, the wife says, oh, brother, and she runs back to the car to get his glasses for him. In the meantime, he stumbles upon the, the centerpiece of the entire art gallery, the, the most important, the most famous, the most beautiful painting in the entire place. And he does what only he can do, which is to go up to the canvas and look at it directly up close, and all he sees is a dark splotch. Dark blue, some grays, and black. And he says, I don't know what the big deal is. I don't know why everyone comes to this art gallery just to see this work of art. It's, it's not very beautiful. It's rather gloomy, shadowy, nothing to see here, until his wife comes and puts his glasses on for him and pulls him back five steps. And then he sees the entire painting. And yes, he sees that splotch of gray, dark blue and black, and sees that it is, in fact, shadowy and dark, but he sees that it has to be that way to contribute to the overall beauty of the picture. Well, a lot of times we make the same mistake as this old man. His problem is our problem. We are spiritually nearsighted. 
We focus so much on the here and now that we forget about the big picture. We get caught up in the small details of our lives. We become prisoners of the moment. We're too close to the situation, and we can't see what God is doing in the grand scope of our lives. Well, as you saw, our passage today promises us that God works all things together for good to those who love him. A monumental promise, but a promise that's monumentally hard to fulfill. How in the world is God going to fulfill this promise when there are so many things in our lives that can go bad? There are many things that God will bring into your life that just won't feel good. And you'll say, I just can't imagine how this is good. Uh, There's just no way, no matter how you spin it, that this is actually good. I've told my friends about this, and nobody is saying that this is good. You might have an ideal in your mind of what life is going to look like in the future, uh, that you're going to get a certain GPA, and you're going to get into a certain grad school, and you're going to start dating a certain someone, and you're going to get a certain job and marry a certain person, and in that job you're going to make a certain amount and live in a certain kind of house and have certain kind of kids, and you have this all in your mind, but God might break those plans. And God might break those plans in a very significant way where you look back and say, my life turned out nothing like I imagined. This summer, may look very different than you planned. Next school year might turn out very different than what your ideal was. As you look back at this school year, you might say, wow, in many ways, this year was a great, great disappointment. All things work together for good. How is that possible when there's so much bad in this world? Sin is bad. Pride is bad. Selfishness is bad. Cheating is bad. Bitterness is bad. Lying is bad. Marital infidelity is bad. Suffering is bad. Persecution for your faith is bad. Cancer is bad. Abuse is bad. Getting fired is bad. Depression is bad. Sickness is bad. There's no doubt that in this life there are plenty of things that are bad. But when we, get, when we get so caught up in the bad and we, we focus so much on the bad, this passage reminds us that we're looking at the canvas of God's sovereignty just two inches away from our nose. That we're not seeing the big picture. And this passage pulls us back a few steps to look at the big picture of the entire year. And pulls us back even further to get the even bigger picture of your entire life. And it pulls us back all the way to get the even bigger picture of all eternity. That's what we're going to see in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. I'm going to break this passage into two parts First, we're going to look at the promise that all things work together for good in verse 28. Then we're going to look at three ways all things work together for good 
in verses 29 to 30. So let's start with the promise itself. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. We know it. We've studied it. We've memorized it. We've used it to counsel other people. But because this verse is used so often, it's become this uh, kind of all-purpose encouragement. Are you having a bad day? Well, cheer up. Everything works together for good. Oh, did your girlfriend just dump you? Well, all things work together for good. Oh, did you get a bad grade on your midterm? Have I got a verse for you? We've quoted this verse to death, where it's become some kind of bland, generic kind of encouragement. Basically, the Christian version of everything's going to be okay. But I don't want to downplay the importance of this verse. The thing is, this verse really is a major source of encouragement, a major source of comfort. And we should be reciting it to ourselves, and we should be using it often in counseling. In fact, this verse promises more than you probably think. It promises more hope, more comfort, more peace than you probably think, so much more than just everything's going to be okay. So let's look at it. Notice first the confidence in the promise. And we know. We know. Not we think not we feel, not we're pretty sure, we know. This is conviction, this is confidence, this is certainty. We have confidence that God will work to our good because of who he is. He will always be good to us because he himself is good. Secondly, let's look at the recipients of the promise. This promise isn't for everyone. It's clear that this promise is directed only toward believers, that is, those who are true Christians, those who love God. To be a Christian means that you not just believe in God, but that you embrace him, you love him, you adore and cherish him. This is the natural response of one who has been forgiven of their sin. I think of the woman in Luke 7 uh, called a sinner notorious in town for her sin. But we find her at the feet of Jesus, pouring expensive ointment on his feet and, and wiping the ointment onto his feet with her hair, kissing his feet and her tears streaming down her face and mixing with the ointment. This extravagant act of devotion, this extravagant act of love, why? Because she has been forgiven much. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Believers love God. And then the second description of the recipients of the promise for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, this calling is sometimes categorized by theologians as the effectual calling. That is, it is effective 100% of the time. This is not an invitation. This is not an RSVP. This is not optional. This is a summons from the king of the universe. 
and all who hear it irresistibly come to him. They see him as the true God. They see his gospel as the true good news. And they find that irresistible and come to him and embrace him in all his holiness and beauty. Now, the effectual call is sometimes contrasted with what's called the general call. When you see general call, you can just think of it as evangelism. I call someone, I use my voice to beckon them to believe in the gospel. But the effectual call is a call of God, always effective. And the effectual call comes through the general call of the evangelist. So I may use my voice to call a hundred sinners to believe in Jesus Christ. But God may choose to only use two of my hundred general calls as his effectual call and only draw two of those sinners to repentance and faith in his son. The difference is that the evangelist's call can be ignored while God's call cannot. If I proclaim the gospel, my call offers hope. God's call gives hope. My call offers life. His call gives life. My call commands you to love God. God's call enables you to love him. When God calls a sinner, that sinner responds in faith and repentance 100% of the time. So God identifies believers in two ways. They're called those who love God and they're called those who are called of God. When it says that they're called of God, this is the objective divine foundation. Uh, to be called of God is this objective outside of yourself, divine foundation. And when it calls believers those who love God, this is the subjective human experience. The divine reality is that God called you to himself, and the outworking of that in the human experience is to love God in our hearts and in our lives, to love the one who called us. So far in examining verse 28, we've seen the confidence in the promise and the recipients of the promise. Let's now look thirdly at the extent of the promise. It's seen in the phrase, all things. No qualifications, no exceptions. This is comprehensive. The good works out for good. The bad works out for good. The mundane and boring and gray works out for good. Now, the Greek word for work together is the word synergē, uh, the word from which we get our English word synergy, to interact and engage together to produce something good. All things synergize for our good. God orchestrates this event and that event and that event and every molecule in the universe and uh, every happening in history for the good of Christians. Now, that's a promise. That's some promise. And on the surface level, you've got to admit that that's got to be a very, very difficult promise for God 
to fulfill. I mean, think about what kind of crazy power it would take, what kind of crazy complex plan it would take to arrange everything in the universe in all time to work out always and only for the good of the church. How is that possible? Well, our first clue comes at the end of verse 28. For those who are called according to his purpose. The recipients of this promise, that is true Christians, have been called for a purpose, and that purpose is good. And this good purpose is explained and unfolded in the next two verses. Let's now turn to three ways all things work together for good in verses 29 to 30. The first word we read in verse 29 is this connecting word, for. It's the reason, the explanation that Paul can make such an audacious statement. How is it that all things work together for good toward believers? Three ways. First, all things result in the sanctification of believers. All things result in the sanctification of believers. It's found in the first part of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, what does it mean that God foreknew us? The quick answer is to know beforehand. True, but there's more to it than that. When the Bible talks about knowing, it doesn't refer to mere cognition or intellect. It doesn't just refer to head knowledge. It goes beyond that and speaks of relationship. For example, Jeremiah 1.5. Speaking of Jeremiah the prophet, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God formed Jeremiah in the womb of his mother, and had some kind of special relationship with him, even at that stage. John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. This tender picture of Jesus as the good shepherd, he knows, he has a relationship with his sheep. He loves them and tenderly cares for them. And then a negative example in Matthew 7, 22 to 23, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Well, it's not that Jesus never heard of them before. It's that he didn't have a relationship with him. Uh, they had never loved him. There was no intimate relationship between the two of them. So knowing speaks of knowing someone intimately, relationally, not just knowing facts about you. On top of that, you'll see that when God knows, the object is always a person. Did you notice that? God is not foreknowing things. God is not foreknowing actions that people perform. God foreknows people. God knew Jeremiah when he was still in the womb. The good shepherd knows his own. Jesus said to the fake Christians, I never knew you. And then in verse 29, those whom he 
foreknew. You see, God's not foreknowing facts about you. He's not foreknowing your faith or your decision to follow him or your love or obedience. He's foreknowing you. This is about relationship. This is about intimacy. This is about love. In fact, probably the best way to think about foreknowledge is to think for love. That God had set his love on you in eternity past and decided to enter into this intimate relationship with you. And then God puts into effect this foreknowledge. Because he foreloved us, he made a plan. Verse 29 says, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined means to mark out a point or determine beforehand. Now the pre part communicates beforehand. But don't forget about the destination part of predestination. There's a goal, there's a destination, there's a purpose that we've been called, as verse 28 says, to a purpose, and that is to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, We are marked out and appointed beforehand to become like Jesus Christ. This is the first good that is brought about by all things. Believers are conformed to the image of God's Son. So here we get a redefinition of good. The good is not necessarily comfort, not necessarily happiness, not necessarily everything going according to plan, everything falling into place like you wanted it to be. The good is defined as being made more like Jesus. The good is that we learn how to love like Jesus loved, to serve like Jesus served, to obey the Father like Jesus obeyed the Father. The good is learning to be kind and humble and gracious in our words just like Jesus. So when Paul says that all things work together for good, which is being conformed into the image of Christ, He means to say that everything you experience in this life, every positive thing, every setback, every little detail of your life pushes you, Christian, pushes you just a little bit further along the road to Christ-likeness. Even the pain, even the suffering. You see, there's... There's levels of sanctification that you simply cannot reach unless through fire. Uh, There are sins in your life and in your heart that you would never identify and you would never be able to weed out of your heart unless through fire. Uh, There are things about God and there are ways to draw near to God that you never would except through fire. Fire. There's aspects of your faith that will only be strengthened through fire. There's idols in your life that will only be given up when they're torn from you through trials. Everything works out for good because in God's intricate and complex plan, everything is designed to build you up in your Christian character. So we do have every reason to rejoice in Romans 8.28. We have every reason to Be excited about this verse and to use it to to counsel other people. Because the good, while not 
exactly like you may have thought is actually a higher good than you were probably thinking. Even the argument that you had with your friend, even the bad grade you got, even the rejection letter you received, even the boring job that you have, even when that one cell mutates and the doctor says it's cancer. Because all of this leads to the gold being refined through the fire. We go deep with God in trials. You've never asked anyone, what was the most important lesson that God taught you? Well, what's the most impactful lesson God taught you? And heard the answer, well, it was this time when my life was going great and everything was comfortable and uh, it was just all sunshines and rainbows and God just zapped me with a really cool lesson. No, you, you hear from people that the, the most impactful lesson that they've learned, the deepest lesson that they learned was through the storm. When God forced their fingers away from the things that they treasured so much and pulled them close to his heart, that's when they became more like Christ in a significant way. John Murray writes, people are usually more anxious to get rid of the problem than they are to find the purpose of God in it. We know the purpose, and it's to make you more like Jesus. So Paul's not guaranteeing that everything's going to be comfortable. Uh, Paul's not guaranteeing that everything's going to turn out the way you want. And he's not guaranteeing that when the things don't turn out the way you want, that God's going to give you something even better than you thought. No, he's promising. He's guaranteeing that whatever you go through, it will move you along at least a little bit toward reflecting the glory and character of the Savior that you love so much. It's what you've been predestined for. Secondly, how do all things work together for good? All things result in the worship of Jesus, second part of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our being conformed to the image of Jesus ultimately results in the worship of Jesus. Here he's called the firstborn. In the Jewish culture at this time, the firstborn son was given special privilege and special status. Uh, being the firstborn didn't speak so much of being the first to be born chronologically. It spoke more about your special preeminence. Colossians 1 speaks of Christ this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Then again in verse 18 of Colossians 1, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Being the firstborn from the dead doesn't so much refer to him being the very first one to rise from the dead, but it means that out of all the people who are resurrected, he's the most important. He's the preeminent one. Being the firstborn is about supremacy, superiority, being over and above, being at the top, being the very first. 
And here in verse 29, it says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And this truth is amazing in and of itself that we, by God's grace, are called the brothers of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Uh, we share a common father with Jesus Christ. Jesus is a son by nature. We are sons by adoption. So we're all part of the same family. Now, Jesus is a son in a different sense than we are, and that's why he is the firstborn. That's why he is the preeminent one. That's why he is the above us one. That's why he is the one who is worthy to be worshipped. So the picture here is of a family with one son, the true son, rising above the rest. And the other sons, sons by adoption, progressively, slowly but surely becoming more like the preeminent son, reflecting the character of the preeminent son, which gives him glory. Our imitation of him causes him to stand out. A major part of our worship is being like Jesus Christ. We honor him by imitating him and striving to be like him. So friends, this is the good. This is the ultimate good. God called you, not just to save you. But to save you to being more and more like Jesus Christ. And not just to save you to be more like Christ, but he saved you to be more like Christ so that we glorify Christ. And this is the end to which we have been created. This is the end for which God predestined us. So you see how we're starting to step back from the painting. As we take a few steps back, we see that dark and shadowy spot in our life. That's not fun and not pleasant and not enjoyable. But we see it in context. We see it on the great canvas of God's sovereignty that that dark spot was meant for good. Through that dark spot, through living in there for some time, we were pushed closer into the arms of Jesus, where we became more like him, which ultimately brought him more glory. He is honored. He is worshipped. And that is the ultimate and highest good. So we're looking at three ways all things work together for good toward believers. We've seen that all things result in the sanctification of believers, the Christ-likeness of believers. We've seen that all things result in the worship of Jesus. And third, all things reveal the security of believers' salvation. Verse 30. Let's read it. And those whom he predestined he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, throughout church history, and even today, there has been a raging debate on whether Christians can lose their salvation 
or not? And here we have one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture, a resounding answer, no. There is no possibility of a true Christian sinning himself out of salvation. A Christian cannot work his way out of salvation in the same way that he cannot work himself into salvation. The Christian is held by grace, and grace will lead him all the way home. All the truths of chapter 8 go against this, these truths that we've been learning. If you look back at chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How ridiculous would it be to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but actually you're a little bit condemned. Actually, yeah, you're, you're actually condemned. Verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're adopted, but, you know, actually, we're going to actually kick you out of the family and go ahead and leave God's house. You're not actually adopted. We're actually going to unadopt you. Verses 16 to 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are the heir. As a child, you have an inheritance with your name on it. Actually, can you go ahead and give that back? I'm going to have to take that inheritance back. No, all the truths that we've been learning shout to us the assurance of salvation, the security of the believer's salvation. Our salvation is rock solid in all things. Whatever life throws your way cannot change that. All things the good, the bad, the mundane, only highlight that nothing can touch your salvation. Verses 29 to 30 is often called the golden chain of salvation. Five links that are connected because they all refer to the same group of people. I notice God is the subject of these phrases. He, his power, he is the active one. He is the one who is doing things in these verses. Notice also the repeated phrase, he also, he also, he also. This attaches the links together. Everyone whom God foreknows, he also predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies. Either you go through all the links of the chain or you go through none. Every single person who starts finishes. No one drops out. No one slips through the cracks along the way. Well, we've already looked at the first three links. We're foreknown, we're loved beforehand, chosen by God to enter into a relationship with him. Predestined, we're marked out not only for salvation, but for sanctification, holiness, and being made like Christ. Seen the third link, being called. This is the effectual call of God. God calls a sinner out of darkness and into marvelous light and through this miracle, the sinner sees the light as it is and embraces it in God. And then the fourth link, justified. If you're foreknown, you're also predestined, you're also called, you're also justified. Justification has been the main theme of the book of Romans. To be justified is to be made right with God by God. To be made right with God 
by God. To be justified to mean, means to be declared righteous, a legal term used in a courtroom. Uh, the judge will either declare the defendant guilty or innocent, guilty or righteous. And despite our sin, God, the cosmic judge, slams his gavel down and declares innocent, righteous. You may go free, sinner. How? Chapter 3, verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified apart from works. And then Paul takes chapter 4, the entirety of it, to illustrate that Abraham believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. That one is not justified by works, but by faith. You are declared right in the eyes of God, not because of anything you could do. You cannot earn your salvation. You simply come to him empty-handed. Confess that you are a sinner and fall, up, fall upon his grace. Uh, trust in him that he will rescue you and he will forgive you of your sins. And, and everything we've been talking about today applies to the believer uh, this promise is given to those who love God, but if you're not a Christian here today, I hope you want this. I hope this makes you itch for this promise, that, that you want everything to work out for your good as well, and hearing this word justified, you have the entrance point into Christianity. You don't work harder. You don't try to clean up your act. You don't try to be a better person. You don't strive for morality. You confess that you failed and you've broken God's laws, and you come to him in faith. You trust in him for salvation and fall upon his mercy and his mercy alone. And then fifth, the fifth golden link in this chain is to be glorified, the end of the chain. We saw this in verse 18 last week, the glory to be revealed to us. We see that at the end of the age, we will stand before God in heaven and see his glory. And here we see something more, that this glory is not just something to see, not just something revealed to us, but something that we actually partake in. We ourselves are glorified. Verse 23, which we also saw last week, uh, describes this partaking in the glory as the redemption of our bodies, being given glorified bodies, resurrected bodies that are now built and put together by God to last forever, built and put together by God to be sinless, to not be susceptible to temptation, designed to worship and enjoy God forever. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is glorification. This is security. He won't leave us hanging. None of us will slip from his grip. From foreknowledge to glorification, from eternity past to eternity future, we are held and we are kept by the grace of God. So this is the big picture Stop looking at the minutiae. Stop looking at the small details. Stop focusing on how bad your situation is now. 
but take a few steps back and then take a few more steps back and see the artwork of God in your entire life and in all of eternity and know that whatever dark splotches there are in your life, God is using those and he's turning them around for your good. He's using them to make you more like Christ, to reflect the character and glory of Christ with ultimately worships Christ. I know that any of those dark splotches can't lay a finger on your salvation. Uh, me and my family experienced a, a small trial this week, and I really just want to share with you uh, how we learned to, to apply the passage uh, that we just looked over today. Uh, we have a little baby at home. Owen is our eight-month-old. And uh, on Tuesday, uh, we noticed that he had a really high fever. The kid was just kind of burning up. And we did a little thermometer check, and his fever was at 105. So we took him in to see the doctor, and uh, he was diagnosed with pneumonia. Uh, and so we, uh, they gave him a shot and gave him some antibiotics. So we took him back home, and he was feeling better for a little bit on Tuesday. Um, but then the fever came back. He felt as hot as ever, and uh, he also started to have some, some pretty irregular breathing. Well, uh, he got a little bit better again Tuesday night, and so I came here on campus on Wednesday and met with a couple of you and then had a little Chick-fil-A with Stephen Smith. And uh, as, we're biting, well, as I'm biting into my sandwich, I get a call from Linda that says that, uh, and she says that Owen's breathing has become really, really sporadic, and she's pretty worried, and she's going to go directly to the emergency room at uh, CHLA, Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Um, so I uh, cut my Chick-fil-A meeting with Stephen short. Uh, I drive Stephen back, and I uh, cancel... Uh, well, I, I, I realize that I can't teach SGLT, uh, so I drive over to Elliot's place and say, you must teach SGLT. I throw my notes in his face and say, it's all you, and he ends up teaching the class, and I drive over downtown to CHLA. Uh, and it's, uh, man, it's, uh, it's not a fun place to be. The Children's Hospital Emergency Room. I mean, you just see kids crying and, you know, families that... Uh, just have distress all over their face. I mean, that's not where they should be spending uh, their evening. They should be have, going out for ice cream. They should play, be playing a board game with their family, not, not in, in, in the waiting room of the ER. Uh, so we go in, and uh, a doctor sees Owen, and uh, he gets uh, another shot, and they give him some more antibiotics. And uh, at this point, you know, he's just crying uncontrollably. Uh, the shot probably had something to do with it as well. And it, there's just no consoling him. Uh, well, we come back home and praise God for, for medicine because what, what they give him actually does work. Uh, and Owen's doing a lot better. I uh, wish I could say this trial is over, but he seems to have developed some kind of uh, allergic reaction to the uh, medicine that they gave him. Again, he's doing a lot better, uh, but the trial's not quite over yet. And again, I'm, I'm telling you that this is not like a huge trial or anything, uh, but something that we've gone through. And, and as I was studying this passage, you know, it's been my framework in, in my mind this whole time. And so I just wanted to share with you lessons that I took away from this and really tangible 
ways that I saw God work this out for good. The good defined as in this passage. Um, first of all, this difficulty uh, really made me and Linda rally together as a married couple, uh, pulled us closer together. So whatever random thing we were talking about that had no eternal value, whatever thing we were bickering about beforehand, really dropped to the wayside. And we had to come together uh, arm in arm to encourage each other and uh, hold each other fast through this trial. Uh, number two, uh, I think this is the same for Linda, but I'll just speak for myself. It, it definitely made me trust in God more. I mean, when your eight-month-old is in the ER, you realize that there's just nothing you could do. Uh, I am no pediatrician, and even the pediatrician, you know, what do you do? Like, he can't say anything. He can't tell you what's wrong. He can't tell you where it hurts. There's really nothing you can do. Uh, you just are forced to trust, and God put me in that position, and I'm thankful that he did. Uh, third, I think that this grew some of your trust as well. So for the few people that I was meeting up with and, and knew about the situation, uh, I received texts from you saying that you were praying for us, and I'm very thankful for that. And so I think in a small way, this also grew your trust as you prayed to God and asked him for healing for my son. Fourth, like I said, Owen is doing a lot better. Uh, I got to see him smile today, the first time in probably three days, and he's uh, somewhat back to himself and just made me more thankful for my little son and uh, thankful to God for uh, his many blessings. Uh, and fifth, this, uh, this really made me think about the passage from last week also, that, man, the, the curse messed up this world. You know, this world's broken uh, with... You know, all that I saw in the, the children's hospital ER, all that I saw with my own son, and in a real way, this made me realize that it's not supposed to be this way. That it's supposed to be the way God designed it and the way he will make all things new. Sinless, perfect paradise. And made me long for that and groan for that a little bit more. So, like I said, this hasn't turned out well in the way that I would have wanted. <clears throat> I would not have liked to go to the hospital. I would like Owen to be completely better now. I would like Linda and the family to be here tonight, but they're not because of this rash that Owen has developed. But in the Romans 8, 28 to 30 cents, there has been so much good, so much good. And I'm so thankful uh, that God has given us this promise, and I got to see it fulfilled firsthand. Now, I am very thankful that I was able to see this fulfilled in very tangible ways, but I must also say that God never promises that he will reveal his purposes in working. He never promises that he will reveal what exactly the good is. We've been learning Job in Crossroads, and Job never finds out, spoiler alert, even when God speaks to him, he never knows what happens in heaven in chapter 1 and 2. That God has this conversation with Satan and he inflicts, and Satan is allowed to inflict Job to test his faith. Job never finds that out. And it's the same way many times for us. We never find out what God is up to. All we're told is that God is good all the time. And he asks us 
to trust him. However, even though we may not get the answers and we may not see how God is working, I do believe that in the next difficulty that you face, in the next trial that you find yourself in, if you would just take a few steps back and observe and take it all in and get the big picture of what God is doing, you may find some specific ways God is pushing you toward Christ-likeness, some specific ways that he is bringing glory to himself and some specific ways that you're learning to treasure the security of your salvation more.